All right, welcome back to a listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we are going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. And just to keep the context in mind, remember that Luke has composed his Gospel of just a handful of major chunks. The first chunk, up through the middle of chapter 4, focused on really the, just the beginnings or the foundations for who Jesus is and Jesus' ministry. The second chunk, beginning in 4.14 and through the middle of chapter 9, is all about Jesus' ministry as he calls disciples to himself and begins to announce that uh, in and through him, God is bringing his kingdom into the world. Well, that's the section we're in here in chapter 5. And so it's important to keep that context in mind just so we don't lose where we're at in the book. And this particular section flows out of the general summary statement at the end of chapter 4. So uh, midway through chapter 4, when Luke begins the second main section, he gives this really portrayal of Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, reading out of the book of Isaiah that becomes sort of programmatic for his ministry. This is what he's going to do. This is who he's going to be. This is how he's going to act. And then at the end of chapter 4, that first little snapshot of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us that Jesus kept on teaching in the towns and villages of Galilee. And so what we have here in chapter 5, verses 12 to 26, is just a couple snapshots of Jesus doing that, teaching throughout the villages and towns of Galilee. And these two snapshots don't give us so much of Jesus' teaching as really the interaction he has with two individuals as a result of his ministry, his teaching throughout their towns and villages. And so the first snapshot is uh, deals with a man with leprosy and how Jesus interacts with him. So picking up in verse 12, it goes like this. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the word leprosy in the both the Hebrew and the Greek here actually refers to various kinds of skin diseases, not so much what we would call leprosy today. Uh, it's more just general kinds of skin diseases. And Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 describes the kinds of symptoms that are uh, meant by this particular word. And so if you want to know more about what the Old Testament law prescribed by it and how it described this issue, look at Leviticus 13 and 14. And that Old Testament text actually requires a process of examination to determine if a skin disease was harmless or highly contagious. And if it turned out to be highly contagious, then the in infected person was to be isolated and identifiable. They had to be moved outside of the community, and there had to be a way of identifying that they had a skin disease that was problematic. And there are two key things to note about that. One is, based on the Old Testament law there in Leviticus 13 and 14, lepers, those with highly contagious skin diseases, were social outcasts who lived on the margins of society. They were ritually unclean because they could make others unclean. And they were sort of like almost a walking corpse in the sense of they were a risk of defilement, and thus they needed to be isolated and identifiable. The second thing, the second key thing to note here is that in the Mishnah, 
a collection of rabbinic teachings. So in the Mishnah, they have a tractate on leprosy. And that tractate suggests that um, highly contagious skin disease, leprosy, was uh, viewed as an affliction that uh, came about from God because of sin and thus could only be cured by God. Um, and this was sort of based on the way it's described in the Old Testament. So when this man comes to Jesus here in Luke chapter 5 and falls on his face and begs him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That's a remarkable statement in this kind of sociocultural situation where leprosy was viewed as, his situation was viewed as something that could only be cured by God. The fact that he makes this appeal to Jesus says that he, he at least sees Jesus as someone vested with the very power of God to solve his situation. And so he comes to Jesus, falls on his face, he cries out and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's a remarkable statement of confidence. He has so much confidence in Jesus. It's not a matter of can you do this, Jesus? It's a matter of, will you do this, Jesus? Because I know you're able. It's just a matter of, are you willing? Well, verse 13 says this. This is how Jesus responds. And he, Jesus, reached out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately, whatever skin disease he had, the leprosy, left him. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus didn't just say a word, sure, I am willing, be cleansed. He didn't just say those words. Jesus touched him. And rather than the uncleanness of the man defiling Jesus, the purity and cleanness of Jesus made the man clean. And so uh, this man's life has been marked by this skin disease and by him having to be isolated and on the margins of society because he was a risk of defilement, because if someone touched him, they too would become ritually unclaimed and had to go through a cleansing ritual. But Jesus touched him, and Jesus' cleanness and Jesus' purity made this man clean, rather than Jesus being defiled. But that's remarkable. And so Jesus touched this man, who who knows how long he had it had been since he had been touched. Who knows how long it had been since he had experienced human contact and human interaction. And Jesus touched him and made the man clean. And then, verse 14, Jesus ordered him to tell no one, but he said, Go, show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. The Old Testament law instructed that a leper who had been clean who had been healed, needed to be re-examined by a priest to make sure that indeed they were cleansed, they were healed. And if it was so, if they had genuinely been cleansed, then the priest declared them clean and a sacrifice was offered. This was the only way they could genuinely and legitimately be restored to community and to religious life. And so when Jesus tells them to do this, this is not just carrying out an arbitrary law. This is a way of... Uh, going through the, the proper proper process of verifying that indeed they're no longer a risk of defilement. They can be welcomed back into community and they can be welcomed back into uh, religious life of the community. 
So then, as a result of this snapshot, as a result of this healing of this man, Luke gives us another general summary of how uh, Jesus' ministry is proceeding. So verse 15, but the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. And so as Jesus was teaching in their towns and performing miracles such as this one that is just described, uh, the the word is spreading through the countryside and spreading through the villages and from town to town, so much so that uh, large crowds now are coming to Jesus. And so when he goes to teach, there's lots of people there and people are bringing sick people to for Jesus to heal. But verse 16 tells us Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. In fact, literally, the way verse 16 reads is Jesus was slipping away and was praying. It's what's called in Greek an imperfect tense, which signifies continuing action. In other words, this was his regular practice. And that's why the translators here have used the word often to try to help us understand this was his, his regular practice. This wasn't just something he did Every now and then, this was something he did regularly, continuously, that Jesus would make sure he carved out time to get away from the crowds, to get away by himself. He would go out into the countryside and spend some time praying. Those little passing moments like that give us an insight into Jesus' approach to life. And as his disciples, who are learning how to do life from Jesus and become like him, we need to pay attention to those, that as the pressure mounted, as the ministry grew, Jesus didn't just, you know, I'm just too busy, right? Jesus made sure he got away and he prayed. Note those things as you read through the gospel because they help us understand his pattern of life and they're instructive to us about how we should approach our pattern of life. The reason Jesus can do what he does in public is because Jesus was intentional about getting away in private to actually spend time with his father and to pray. All right, that's snapshot number one here in this section. The next snapshot Luke gives us is uh, of a man who is paralyzed and what his friends do to get him to Jesus. So picking up in verse 17, one day, Jesus was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And so, again, an opening statement to set the scene for the snapshot, but the opening statement introduces uh, some important characters who are going to play an important role throughout Luke's gospel. Those characters are Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, this is the first time Luke has mentioned the Pharisees. And so we at least need to make sure we remember who the Pharisees are. And if you haven't listened to the introduction to the Gospels, I explain in a little more detail the Pharisees there. But uh, here, let's just review. The Pharisees were laymen, not priests. They were ordinary Jews who had a concern for purity and who devoted themselves to the text of Scripture. And who wanted to live that text out and wanted to see others live it out as well. The Jewish historian Josephus notes there were about 6,000 of them in the first century. And their goal was to keep the law as faithfully as they could and to help the nation of Israel do the same, believing that it was necessary for experiencing all the promises of restoration to be fulfilled. And so they were often leaders in the synagogue, 
and had more influence with sort of the average ordinary Jew than, say, the Sadducees did, who were made up of wealthy aristocrats and priests. And so the Pharisees are popular religious leaders who sought to help people live out the text of Scripture. And the teachers of the law that are noted here as well were uh, skilled interpreters of the Old Testament law who sought to apply it to life as well. In fact, later in the text, they're called scribes. So when you see the Pharisees and scribes, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, we're talking about laymen who sought to live out the text and teach the text and help others understand the text as well. That's who the Pharisees were. And Luke notes here in verse 17 that they had come from everywhere, from Galilee, the region that Jesus was spending most of his time in, Judea, the region around Jerusalem, as well as from Jerusalem itself. And so they have come, uh, apparently because they've heard rumors about this new teacher and rabbi up north, and they've come to listen to him. Well, verse 18 then goes on and says, And some men were carrying a man on a stretcher who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of Jesus. So Jesus is teaching the people. The Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law are there. There's these men that have a friend who is paralyzed. They've heard the stories about Jesus. They're bringing their friend to be healed by him. And they're trying to get him in to set him down in front of Jesus. The problem is it's so crowded, they can't get into the place where Jesus is teaching. So verse 19 says, but when they did not find any way to bring him in because of the crowd, it's so crowded, they can't get through the crowd with the, the stretcher and the paralyzed man. Uh, they decided to go up on the roof. So they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And so they climbed up on the roof, uh, and roofs in their culture in that time and place were flat. They were regularly used for storage. They were often used as a place to spend time and uh, thought and prayer. Maybe in the evenings, the cool of the evening, the family might gather on a roof. So roofs were, were regularly used as a gathering place. They were frequently accessed through a, an external stairwell on the side of the house or a ladder on the side of the house. So getting up on a roof was not unusual, but what they did to the roof was. Here in Luke's version, it says they let him down through the tiles with the stretcher. And that's probably Luke's way of just freeing up the nature of the roof for his wider audience in the greater Greco-Roman world, where outside of Palestine, oftentimes roofs were made with tiles. But there in Palestine, they were typically just made out of mud and sticks and all of that and beams. And that's why Mark describes it as digging through the roof. So they had to remove chunks of the roof somehow in order to make a hole big enough to lower this guy through. Uh, and so they do that. They open up a roof, they create the hole, and they lower the man uh, down into the middle of the crowd through the roof and set him down in front of Jesus. Verse 20 says this, And seeing their faith, he, Jesus, said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Two things to observe about that verse. First off, seeing their faith. That phrase is just powerful and important. He sees their faith. How? And how determined they are to get their friend in front of Jesus because they're convinced of and have complete confidence that Jesus can solve this problem. He can heal them. Their faith is evidenced 
in the things they do, and thus it is visible. They can, he can see it in the fruit of their actions and the things they do. The second thing is, Jesus' response isn't, you're healed. Jesus' response is, friend, your sins are forgiven. For whatever reason, Jesus uh, chooses this moment to say that to this man, friend, your sins are forgiven. How do the scribes and the Pharisees that are sitting there in the crowd respond to this? Well, verse 21 says, the scribes and the Pharisees began thinking of the implications of that statement. Like, your, your sins are forgiven, Jesus says to this man. And so the Pharisees and the scribes are thinking through, wait a second, who can do that? And so um, they're thinking to themselves, maybe they're muttering amongst themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Like, if you sin against me, I can forgive you that wrong. But forgiving Sins in general? Well, that's God's responsibility, right? That's what they're wrestling with. Friend, your sins are forgiven. That's just a general statement of all your sins. Not just he did something wrong to Jesus. All your sins are forgiven. Who can do that but God alone? That's God's responsibility. For Jesus to to claim to be able to forgive sins um, is to assume the prerogative of, of God. And from the Pharisees' perspective, that's blasphemy. So they're they're maybe muttering this amongst themselves, they're thinking this amongst themselves, Jesus knowing how they're going to respond because he he grew up in this world, he knows their, their thinking, he knows what they're wrestling with, so he's aware of their thoughts, verse 22. But Jesus, aware of their thoughts, responded and said to them, why are you thinking this way in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Like, Jesus' response is, if I say your sins are forgiven, how do you know if it didn't happen? But if I say, get up and walk, and he doesn't, well, so which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven of you, or get up and walk. But, notice what Jesus does, verse 24. Jesus does not, uh, Jesus doesn't uh, avoid the implications of what they're saying. Jesus doesn't try to downplay, I'm not, you know, saying I'm God or anything. He doesn't try to downplay anything. Here's what he does. He wants to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. You see, Jesus doesn't shy away from their questions and the implications of it. He doesn't qualify it. He actually sets out to prove that indeed he has the authority to forgive sins, that he can enact this prerogative that really does belong to God alone. And the reason he can do that is because he's the Son of Man. And Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, to refer to himself. And that title derives from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees this vision of one like a son of man who is uh, who comes up to the very throne of God and is seated on God's throne and becomes God's right-hand man. And he rules over God's kingdom on God's behalf. This becomes one of Jesus' favorite designations for himself, the son of man. That one that that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, that one with that authority over God's kingdom. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. And so when he says that you might know the Son of Man has authority, well, the Son of Man is an authority figure in 
the Jewish teaching and Jewish understanding and Jewish belief because of Daniel 7. And so he's claiming this authority to enact the very actions of God on God's behalf and on God's kingdom as the Son of Man. And that means he has the prerogative to forgive. And so Jesus doesn't shy away from that. He actually embraces that. And the proof he gives of that is he says to the man, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And the result of that is, verse 25, immediately the man got up in front of everybody right before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And so Jesus heals this man, and he does so in the context of claiming the authority to to do what only God can do, that is to forgive sins, and the man is healed in front of everyone else. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. So these two snapshots here uh, help us see how Jesus' ministry is unfolding and the response of people to that ministry and how the word is spreading about him. They're amazed at what Jesus is both teaching and what Jesus is doing and how people are bringing their their loved ones and their friends to Jesus in order to be healed by him and how people are trying to figure out who Jesus is and exactly what that means. And so let me just wrap up this section with a couple of observations. The first is this, uh, that I, this just the phrase willing and able sort of strikes me here. The first snapshot in, that we looked at here focuses on the word willing. And we see that Jesus is willing to help this man. He wants to. He's ready. He's poised to. And in the second snapshot focuses on Jesus' authority. And we see that he's the son of man who has the authority and the power to heal and forgive. Jesus is both willing and able um, to help. And we see that here in these very specific situations in the context of Jesus' ministry. The second kind of reflection on this is just the idea of faith. Both of these snapshots demonstrate incredible faith on the people who who are healed, who come to Jesus to be healed. The man with leprosy falls down in front of him. He's completely confident that Jesus can heal him. The others are so certain that Jesus has the ability to heal that they even climb on the roof and they dig a hole and they lower this man down through it. And if you picture that scene, right, like they're on the roof, Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden dirt starts falling, there's a ruckus on the roof, and people are looking up. They're so confident that Jesus can can uh, heal the paralyzed friend of theirs that they're going to dig through the roof. And that helps us uh, see what faith really is, that faith, one of the key elements of it is confidence. In both these snapshots, the people have incredible confidence in Jesus. Uh, The leper is completely sure that Jesus can make him clean if he's willing to do it. The paralyzed man and his friends were so sure Jesus could help, they dig through a roof. And this shows us that Uh, If we're going to have faith in Jesus, one of the key elements of that faith is confidence in him. Confidence to cast ourselves completely upon the mercy of Jesus and, and let Jesus decide how he wants to help us and what he wants to do for us. To have that kind of certainty, that kind of confidence in him. Jesus is both willing and able to help. Do we have confidence in him? 